Hi, and welcome to another Wildlife for You podcast, where we talk about wildlife and wildlife conservation in ways that make sense. I am your host, Daryl Radijak, and I'm joined once again by my good friend and wildlife mastermind, Stephanie Payne. And before we get started today, I want to wish everyone a happy new year and personally thank you, Stephanie, for convincing me to do our last podcast on cryptozoology. That was such a fun podcast. And believe it or not, I actually learned quite a bit from you. So today, I want to return the favor. Ah, wonderful. So are we going to talk about chupacabras, werewolves, or doppelgangers? Well, not exactly. And let me clarify. My appreciation for the last podcast had more to do with keeping an open mind rather than trying to disprove those unlikely mythical creatures. And like you said, that desire to inquire, that right there is what often leads us to new and fascinating discoveries. So I thought we'd continue to do, literally do things in that same vein and talk about some potential discoveries or explanations of everyday things that maybe didn't quite pan out so much in real life. So are you talking about long-held beliefs or what, what we call urban legends? that were completely debunked by science, often through a deeper, more thorough examination of an observation. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, but before we get started, um, we aren't trying to put anyone down, not anyone's grandfather, father, uncle, or even old man Johnson. Um, you know, we're, we're just here to talk about the real science. So now, trying to convince that grandpa, dad, uncle, or old man Johnson of the facts may be near impossible, but at least we want you to know the real truth. Yeah, and I'm so glad you gave that caveat because inevitably we are going to upset someone because they've heard something from a close relative or like you said, their, their dad or grandfather. And we might tell you that what you heard from your grandfather is completely wrong. Um, but like, like Stephanie said, we're not trying to offend anyone. We just want to more or less get the truth out there by giving you the facts behind some of, some of these observations they may have had. But for example, my, my dad is the greatest example. He literally knew everything and he had an answer for everything. And I remember as a young boy, I, I just like ate up everything he said and I accepted it without question. And especially if it had to do with anything in nature, when we go for a walk or a hike, we we're going camping or fishing or doing whatever, I would be asking all sorts of questions like, why is the sky blue? Why are the leaves green? What, what is, what kind of frog is this? And he would answer everything. But then I went to college and I knew I wanted to, as a young boy, I wanted to study wildlife and wildlife conservation. And I learned things are different. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my dad. He is the greatest person in the whole world. But I come to realize maybe he wasn't as up to date with the things in, in, the, in the wildlife world as I believed as a young child. Okay, so well, let me, let me interrupt. So why do you think that is? It's, it's not like your dad or anyone else for that matter was trying to mislead you, right? No, not at all. And that's a great point. And so I hope everyone understands there is no malicious intent whatsoever from my dad or anyone's grandfather or whoever. Um, in fact, there's, 
there's actually a couple of really good reasons why some of these urban myths or these urban legends that we're going to talk about today, why they're out there. And first off, we, we have to realize that the last few generations, they're the first ones to really be separated from the farm, to really um, no longer earn that living and earn their keep on the land. And, and what I mean by that, in generations past, people really lived on or like what we say, they lived off the land in many situations. It's also not that long ago that a high school education was a pretty stout degree. In fact, there's a lot of folks in the older generations that never even went to high school. And so the education standards really weren't up there. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, maybe the book learning wasn't as advanced back in the day when our fathers and grandfathers were growing up. And for sure, we didn't have all the research we have now. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. But here's the thing. Even back then, people still wanted answers. They still wanted to know why or how things worked. And in the absence of higher learning, they pretty much just gave it their best shot. Yeah. And I would say that's that's admirable of them. Um, and also admirable that people have that much faith and trust to just blindly accept something from someone they love. Admirable, yes. Sometimes make, misguided. Yeah, that's a resounding yes. Yeah. So what do you think the, the leading cause of, of how urban legends get started is? Well, a good question. But personally, and I think it's innocent enough, I think it's a simple error in observation. And what I mean by that is that when people see something, they often equate that event to something that maybe not be even related. Okay. I, I see where you're going here. The whole idea that correlation does not equate to causation. Exactly. Now, all of those words sound really fancy and scientific but let's do a service to our listeners and, and let's do a better job of explaining these concepts of correlation and causation. And if you don't mind, shall I let you define the correlation first? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, correlation is a statistical technique, which tells us how strongly a pair of variables are linear related and linearly related and, and how they change together. So it doesn't tell us the why and the how behind the relationship, it just says the relationship exists. For example, uh, when variable X increases, Y also tends to increase. Now, keep in mind that they don't always have to be positive relationships. Um, by that, I mean, sometimes if, if X increases, Y may decrease. Um, but I, I think the easiest way to think about this is that there's a pattern that can be seen. And most importantly, it can be statistically measured. That's why I asked you to do it. I knew you'd do a great job describing correlation. So that will leave me to take a stab at defining causation. Now, this one's a little bit simpler. That's kind of why I took it. But causation is where one event tends to cause another event. And I told you, is that <laughs> that much easier? It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Now, an easy example of this, um, let me think. Okay, I'll pick on myself. People that are overweight tend to have more health problems such as high blood pressure. So that state of being overweight tends to cause these other health issues. 
And as you can imagine, being overweight and having high blood pressure, uh, they're, they're very highly correlated. You, you will see the pattern in there. But here's the lesson. Just because things are correlated does not necessarily mean one causes the other. Oh, can I, can I chime in here? Absolutely. Because I think I've got a great example of what you're getting at. So if you look at statistics, you'll see that the sale of ice cream is usually highly correlated to the rate of homicides. So does that mean that people who commit murder just must love eating ice cream? No, heck no. Um, You often have to dive deeper to figure out what's going on. In this example, the sale of ice cream is often tied to warmer summer days. Those warmer summer days also lead to more people being outside. Therefore, there are more human-to-human interactions. Unfortunately, the more people uh, that, that interact, the, the higher the likelihood of homicide. So in other words, the causation of homicides has absolutely nothing to do with the sale of ice cream, even though they're correlated. That was such an excellent example. You did a wonderful job there. Um, but that, that definitely shows how correlation does not equate to causation. Thank you. So now what in the H-E double hockey sticks are we talking about? Because I, I thought we were supposed to be talking about you know, wildlife urban legends in this episode. Uh, patience, my young Padawan. You just helped me explain how so many of these wildlife urban legends just came about. Ah, no, that I did not. The floor to you, I shall yield. <laughs> I heard what you did there. That was actually pretty good. Thank you. Now leave the Star Wars and any Harry Potter references to me, please. But otherwise, can we go ahead and dive into these urban legends? We sure can, Yoda. (laughs) And just so you know, there's there's probably a short joke in there somewhere. I would only be shocked if there wasn't. (laughs) All right. So let's start with some of these urban legends where folks from the past observed something and they, they pretty much erroneously attributed it to something else. Um, something that may not even be related at all. All right, let's see. Um, let, okay, what I'm going to do, let me start with a well-known urban legend and see if you can finish it off. All okay. right, if you see a fox or a raccoon, one of those me- meso predators, you see a fox or raccoon wandering around in the daytime, it must be... Rabid. <laughs> and do you really think that's the case? No, heck no. Um, He or she, meaning the fox or the raccoon, could have been hungry, could have been disturbed from their den, could have been food conditioned because of some goofball person feeding it. Um, It it quite possibly could have been rabid if it was also showing other signs of rabies. But I mean, geez, Daryl, there's like a whole host of reasons why a raccoon or a fox could be out during the day. Exactly. And I imagine that legend was born after one of those critters came out during the day and it did turn out to be rabid. The problem is suffering from rabies is likely to have that animal moving during all times of the day, whether or not it's day or night or whatever. So uh, that's a great example of just someone misattributing uh, something and creating an urban legend. But um, is it okay if I talk about my personal all-time pet peeve when it comes to correlation not equaling causation? Of course, because I, uh, I do just love seeing you agitated. Okay, I'm teasing. <laughs> you better be. So. All right. Um, 
many now I understand many of our listeners may not have heard of this because it is more it's a more common belief in the hunting world, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but have you ever heard of this idea that deer movement is affected by moon phase? Heard of it? I mean, you can read about it in almost every single outdoor magazine and find it in every hunting app. I mean, heck, they they show you those those salooner tables based on the moon phase that will magically tell you uh, when the deer and other animals are supposedly most active. Exactly. And for those that aren't too familiar with this idea, let me try to explain. And just so you know, I mentioned my dad before. My dad, uh, remember, he taught me everything and he told me everything you're about to hear. But when it comes to this whole moon phase thing and its effect on deer movement, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people or hunters out there that believe uh, the moon phase, whether or not it is a full moon or a new moon or whatever moon phase they believe in, that it is going to have a significant effect on deer movement. Like some people believe when there's a full moon out at night, that deer will move more during the daytime uh, following that full full moon at night. Uh, and you, you'll hear all sorts of lore. You look at those you mentioned the, those lunar tables in, in these magazines and these almanacs, and they'll tell you when animals are going to move more based on the moon. And here's the thing. It's, it's complete hokey. <laughs> There's literally four drivers of why animals move. There is, first of all, there's hunger. They're, they're hungry. They're thirsty. They, they got to get up and satisfy either their hunger or thirst. Another big one that causes animals to move is the technical term is thermoregulation. And all that means is they're either too hot or they're too cold. They're, they're trying to adjust their body temperature. So they'll, they'll move to a shady spot or they'll, they'll seek a warmer area if it's too cold out. Another big one, and this is so much common sense, is predation. If a deer is sitting there and a, a hunter, a cougar, a coyote, something walks by and they're afraid of getting eaten or killed, they're going to move. And uh, that, that's, like I said, that's one of the biggest common sense. And then there's one that actually occurs only seasonally, and that's where hormones drive them to move. Lots of animals, including deer, have these mating seasons. And so uh, we, uh, during the during November when the deer are mating, uh, they tend to move a whole lot more. And so literally the bottom line is their brain is telling the deer to move. And we've known this all along, but some folks literally insist that the moon causes deer to move. Um, okay. I, you go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> nope, nope. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, th this is how bad it is and how how convinced some people are. Um, I had a gentleman who was just arguing me uh, for so long that, that the moon has a strong force over deer movement. And I asked him, how could that possibly be? And he, he told me, he's like, you do know that the moon affects the tides, like the ocean tides. And I said, yeah, that's, that's the moon's gravity causing those tides. And he's like, yeah, it has that amazing pull of the water. And 
I said, I'm still not understanding how it gets deer to move. And he's like, well, duh, deer are mostly made up of water. <laughs> and so when, when people are, are thinking that physical, <laughs> that these laws of physics are causing deer to move, it just, uh, they're, they're just missing the point there. Okay. So for the record, the, the moon causing tides and deer made of water one, that is the first time I've ever heard that. Um, anyway, so how do you show people then what's going on? Or in this case, what's not going on? Because remember, in our last podcast, we did say that biologists should try to do a better job of explaining things instead of just ridiculing them. So how do we and, show them? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said it because I tend to lose my, maybe not my temper, but I, I get shorter and shorter answers and we must do a better job of explaining things. But um, how do we show that the moon does not affect deer movement? It's, it's a relatively easy answer. It's not us that tell people what causes deer to move. We, we let the deer tell people. And literally what we have done over the last uh, number of years is we put so many of these radio collars on deer. And, and the radio collars nowadays have lots of GPS instrumentation and they're collecting movement data constantly. And so we look at the deer movement data, and this is like hundreds of deer, lots of deer have these radio collars. And when we look to check the amount of movement that they're doing, it does not correlate. They don't move anymore during a full moon, during a new, new moon. It's pretty constant. And the one thing that definitely causes them to move, especially in the fall, is that, that drive to, um, to mate. So during the rut, they definitely do move a whole lot more, but it has absolutely nothing to do with moon phase. So I'm, I'm just not sure how anyone can continue to argue that the moon causes deer to move or to not move. Okay, but sadly, those people still do. Um, I, I may have a few relatives that are literally turning off our podcast as we speak. Um, let's just say that, that they're firm believers that, that hunting by the moon phase makes sense. Well, believe it or not, I am too. <laughs> what? I mean, you just told me it has no effect. Yeah, but I told you the moon has no effect on deer, my dear. Uh, and we, we, we both agree that there's lots of hunters out there that read those magazines, that read those almanacs. And so it has a tremendous effect on hunters. Now, although this aspect of it really hasn't been studied, I do have a theory behind it. Um, and remember what I said, the four driver, drivers of movement, what they were? Yeah, sure. Like you said, it's, it's the 4-H of wildlife movement. Hunger, heat, i.e. that thermoregulation, uh, thermoregulation, harassment, which includes predation, and hormones. Correct. And remember, all of those hunting magazines that are predicting when the best time to hunt is based off the moon, all that media attention and the, those make-believe predictions, they literally have the power to send legions of hunters, especially on public land. They send oodles and oodles of hunters out there in the woods on certain days at certain times of the day. So you see what's happening there? Oh yeah, holy crow. So in the deer will be up on their feet because of the increased harassment pressure of you know human predation. In this case, magazine or app-toting hunters um, being that, that cause of predation. So it's 
it is. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I call them the, the magazine hunting force will we'll hit those w- woods and get the deer up and moving about. So anyway, I, I'm not sure how we can correct this urban legend. And if they're literally creating it before their eyes, I guess all we can do is keep preaching the truth. Yeah. And I loved this example. Um, instead of, of the moon being the cause, it's almost like the magazines or these apps are the cause. But for the record, D, it's the 21st century. Usually it's an on-demand app these days. They're not waiting around for articles. But um, anyhow, it's brilliant. Um, and it sure would be nice to test that theory. But the one thing we can dispel is the fact that the moon does not cause deer to change their movement in their, their moving patterns. So anyway, okay. Let's switch gears for a second. We spent a ton of time and we've only hit two urban legends, but I think it was, it was a great lesson for our audience to discern between that correlation and causation. Um, But let's have a little fun because let's face it, there's, there's some wildlife related urban legends out there that are just flat out crazy wrong. I agree with you there. And did I mention that our ancestors, they tended to come up with answers at all costs and Unfortunately, sometimes they were just, they were flat out wrong. Or, or in many cases, they even made stuff up that just sounded good. For sure. So let's let's rattle some of these off. Um, better yet, I'll bring up a topic and you tell me some of the urgent legends you've heard. Okay. I hope I don't disappoint, but I may ask you to tag team in case I forget anything. Okay. All right. So let's let's start with bears. Oh my gosh, where should I start? Um, okay, here's one that uh, my dad used to tell me. Uh, he used to always tell me that bears cannot run fast downhill. And uh, gosh, I'm so glad I never <laughs> never ran into a bear when I was with my dad. <laughs> um, the, the concept was they, they were a bit aloof and clumsy. And so if you run downhill and like zigzag or or dodge in between trees, the, the bear will stumble and you'll be able to outrun that bear. So not only should you not front from a bear, but if you run downhill, <laughs> given how fast and how agile bears are, the bear will just be eating you at the bottom of the hill, <laughs> assuming you don't uh, you don't trip or he just doesn't catch you first. So that yeah. is that, that is a big thing. Running downhill to get away from a bear that was a big one that uh, never should have been made up. Cool. I've got one. Um, so they say I, that, that bears are attracted to women during that time of the month. And I'll tell you, this myth, it goes back to what bear, fo- bear folks called the Night of the Grizzlies, which was back in 1967. Um, pretty, pretty notorious night for bear researchers because while bear attacks, especially predat- predatory ones, they're pretty rare, there were actually two attacks in Glacier National on the very same night, miles apart. But both attacks were on women, and this gave rise to the myth that bears are attracted to the smell of menstruation. Um, just, you know, searching for reasons to explain how two attacks could happen in one night like that. Uh, you know, what can I say? They were, they were literally reaching for straws so they could find something to explain what honestly, it was just a sad coincidence, um, all because one of the two women was actually on her period. But there's, there is no scientific evidence, even though there's been multiple studies showing that black or brown bears are attracted to the smells related with menstruation 
and only some evidence um, that the polar bears actually are. Yeah, and, and I could see the polar bears since they are the only true carnivore of those three bear species. So, all right, here's another one with bears, and it's one of my favorite. I don't know if it's an urban legend, but the, the one thing that I bring up all the time, and you know me, is I'm always hearing, oh, black bears don't hibernate, or black bears in the Smokies or in the South, they don't hibernate. That's not so much an urban legend, that's more or less a misconception. Uh, and that was brought about by confusion in terminology about the definition of true hibernation versus this other definition of torpor. The bottom line is they do hibernate, but so many people believe that bears in the South don't hibernate. Um, anyway, that's, that's, that's my only rant on hibernation. So do you have any others? Um, well, one I hear a lot in, in my line of work is that bears and, and other predators, honestly, that they get a taste for human flesh. Um, I'll, I'll say there's, there's not any really great studies that we can do for this one for pretty obvious reasons. I mean, for starters, we don't have human test subjects just lined up to help prove or disprove this theory. And, and secondly, it would be bad news for any bears involved in that study. But what we can say is that there's no scientific evidence that a bear who has tasted humans is somehow more prone to wanting to eat humans over other natural, normal food sources. Um, bears, as, as we've said in other podcasts, are opportunistic omnivores. So there, there are some really uh, interesting stories that circulate about how good and salty we people must taste. And and I won't say in rare instances that people may not make a more stable prey source. I mean, let's be honest. If I'm a predator and I'm living outside of a rural village, um, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking globally now, but I'm living outside of a rural village, people may be one of my easiest prey sources that I have, assuming that I've overcome my natural fear of people. But that doesn't mean that I've developed a taste where my body says, okay, if I've got a chance um, to get my normally preferred prey source, over a person, I think I'm going to take the person because they taste like Cheetos. You know, that doesn't happen. So let, let's, let's be real. When it comes to predatory animals, and I refer more here to, to true predators, even not just opportunistic predators, but they, they still fall into the mix. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm going for the best bang for the buck if I'm a predator. Um, I'm going for the, the most sure, easiest sources that I'm pretty sure are going to pan out. Um, so it's, it's, it has nothing to do with preferring one species over another necessarily. It's, it's opportunity and, you know, how hungry I am and how willing I am to put myself in harm's way to get that, that prey item. But anyway, yep. I'll, I'll start babbling. Let's go ahead and switch animals. Um, do you have any good urban legends about snakes? Hmm. Do I have any good urban legends on snakes? <laughs> well, Considering snakes are probably one of the most vilified and misunderstood creatures. I yeah. Think, yeah. The, well, the one I hear most often is that baby snakes are more venomous because they can't control their venom. Um, in fact, every snake decides in each and every incident where they bite something, how much venom they want to use in that instance. Um, it, it's instinctual. Instinctual. I can speak today. Um, so they actually yeah. do know how to do this right away, even, you know, even if they, they get a bit more fine muscle control later in life, they, they still, they have this ability, but we can see why humans might come with this real though. So let me, let me try to explain this one. 
So there are some studies that indicate that the toxins in venom can actually get more potent as the snake ages. And as any veteran snake would know, venom is a precious resource. Um, additionally, the venom yield for an adult snake is generally at a higher capacity. Plus a venomous snake with no venom doesn't really eat very well. So they've learned a bit more of that minute muscle control. Um, add to it that their venom uh, might be a bit more potent with age. And, and sure, maybe a veteran snake won't dose you with everything they have in a defensive move because they still know that they might want to eat later. On the opposite side of that, neonate snakes, they know instinctively that it is, you know, they're at their most vulnerable. So it's it's likely to be a, a bit more of, I'm, I'm giving it all she's got, Captain, you know, to give a, a Scotty from a Star Trek quote. But um, anyhow, the baby snake can control its venom. And again, its venom may not be as potent as that of an adult. So it, it may give you more, but it's, it's not because it can't control its venom. Um, thinking a baby snake is more dangerous or less dangerous, eh, well, you know, they likely aren't as toxic. So saying that they're more venomous is actually flat out wrong. Saying they can't control what they give you, also wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, eh, let's just let's make it a rule to not mess with venomous snakes um, and just live and let live, shall we? We shall. And that that's a great one. That's that's. That's right up there, but I think there's another one that I need to bring up because it is absolutely probably the most widespread urban legend ever out there. And let me ask you this. Have you ever heard someone say or talk about their wildlife agency and they talk about how the agency came in and they stocked rattlesnakes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> with, with, uh, with giant crates in the middle of the night with black helicopters that make no noise. Yes. Oh my gosh. I, I've, I've, I can't even, I don't have enough fingers and toes to count all the times that I've, I've heard that one before, but pretty sure they had cougars also caged right <laughs> next to those snakes. Yeah. But it's often cited people. And this is definitely one that gets handed down from generation to generation. Cause some, someone from long ago will talk of a time that they saw an agency dr truck drop something off and released and, and usually the story goes, they released rattlesnakes somewhere. And typically the, the reasoning behind it is they're saying, oh, they released rattlesnakes to control some other kind of population to, to keep that other population in check. Um, so the easiest way to answer that urban legend on whether or not state wildlife agencies stocked rattlesnakes, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> And I know we're supposed to be more uh, eloquent in our explanations, but it's just one that has not has not occurred. Gotcha. Okay, I've got another one. I, I have heard so many people say a copperhead will kill you dead um, and that they smell like cucumbers. So there's so many rumors about copperheads and how aggressive they are and how deadly they are. But um, after a copperhead bite, medical facilities often don't even dose somebody with antivenoms because the antivenom can actually be harder on the system than the actual copperhead venom. Um, it, it depends on lots of other things, but like most other things, those who are more susceptible, like the elderly, super young or immunocompromised, they might be at a higher risk. But, um, you know, out of a, a couple thousand average bites a year, something like 0, <coughs> 0. wow, 0.01% are fatal statistically. But regardless, if you're bitten by any, any venomous snake, 
seek medical attention because time is tissue, folks. You know, uh, you want to keep as much of your body tissue as healthy as you can. So don't assume, you know, don't assume it's a dry bite, even if you don't have uh, any immediate pain or anything because you thought it was a grown up one. So it's less likely to give you venom. But anyway, um, there's also a room that um, that's okay. There's also needing a drink. Here, I'll take one for you. Uh, yeah. No, I, I'm good. I it, have you ever like had a stifle a cough and your like eyes are watered? I'm trying not to interrupt you. I am so sorry. My allergies have been <laughs> bothering me, <clears throat> but I, I will let you continue. Go. I'm done. <laughs> sure. Anyway, so there's another rumor um, that the musk that a copperhead gives off that it smells like cucumbers. Um, and I, I will say they can give off a musky odor if if harassed, like like many other snakes and mammals of note. But that that doesn't mean that you can be walking in the woods and think you smell cu- cucumbers and suddenly think, whoa, I must be near some copperheads. Um, likely, you're actually just around some vegetation that made your olfactory senses associate with a cucumber. But plenty of people, I will say, that that study wild copperheads and work with them daily have never, ever said that they they smelled cucumbers associated with these snakes, even even in areas where large numbers of those snakes gather in the winter. Yeah. And that's that cucumber one is is one I hear so many times. Now, I will tell you another thing to add on that is that people, different aromas smell like different things to people because I've got a terrible sniffer and uh, people will say, oh, do you smell that? It smells like vanilla. And I I smell nothing. So (laughs) anyway, people (laughs) smell things differently. So, Um, well, sticking with the, the whole snake thing. I'm really going to offend old man Johnson here because this is one of those those legendary snake tales that get passed down from holler to holler. But uh, have you ever heard of a hoop snake? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, <laughs> I I know that I, I've heard it mentioned numerous times, but people will say what a hoop snake is, is one of the ways that they will travel downhill faster is they'll bite the end of their tail and then they roll downhill like a hula hoop so can i use my previous explanation of yeah no that does not happen (laughs) okay so speaking of uh, snakes rolling around i will tell you that i've heard uh, a million times that water moccasins which are that's the colloquial term for a cotton mouth that they chase you and i've actually heard this about copperheads too actually but and i really i can't tell you how often i've heard this one and if i wasn't in the know um, I, I might be one of those those people actually citing this one. So let's let's be honest here. First off, snake venom is not instantly fatal, which is why most venomous snakes bite and then retract to wait while their venom incapacitates their prey. Um, do you know why? I do not. Okay, it's because other than that one bite, snakes don't have any other good defenses. You know, I mean, yeah. can't punch you, can't, I mean, they can't, they can't <laughs> grab no their, karate kick. <laughs> there's no karate kicks. And, you know, if it starts to go bad, they can't actually bite their tail and roll downhill like a loop. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, so their best defense is to get away. Um, so even if they bite something large in a defensive situation, they know their venom's not going to immediately drop it dead. And there's a chance that the enraged bitten thing is going to start stomping around and end the snake's life. Um, so snakes have tons of things that, that they try to do to keep big, scary things away from them. Um, and I mean, the, the obvious thing is hiding. 
but they can also give off a musky odor that's kind of anti-appetizing, not necessarily like cucumbers. Um, Non-rattlesnakes, they'll often really quickly, they'll wiggle their tail um, on the ground, hoping that there's dead leaves and other things around there because they're trying to make it sound like a rattler because that's a rattler's great you know, way of announcing itself. And then some of them, if you harass a snake or if it's scared to death of you, some of them will actually barf up their last food item <laughs> to try yeah. and convince you um, that they're not the easiest food source. And just for the record, that last one is so gross. It would totally convince me that I didn't want to eat that <laughs> snake, but it's so cool though, too. It's well, I mean, kind of, it can be really scary for the snake because if the snakes, you know, its teeth are all shaped backwards, so it can actually cause some other issues. But anyway, <laughs> um, anyhow, so often snakes get this reputation for being aggressive when in fact, they're just making a beeline for where they think their safest place would be. And sometimes it's, it's that general direction that makes people freak out and think, ah, oh, it's coming right for me. Um, and I actually did have to, the reason why I said I could be in the, the, the masses saying this is I did have an incident once where I was out trout fishing and um, a copperhead and I, we found ourselves on the same fallen tree trunk and uh, the copperhead was coming my way. I was going to be going the direction when I saw, you know, where the copperhead was. I'm not even sure if he actually realized that I was standing there, um, honestly, but really soon it was a choice for me between jumping into the brook or jumping to the bank because the snake was like, yep, I'm going to go over there because that's where I feel I need to be. So I, I jumped to the bank and he finished his little trek and then carried on with his merry way, totally ignoring me. Um, and then once when my brother and I were out fishing uh, down south, we had a, a run in with a water moccasin and my brother, you know, he swore it was trying to come into our boat. And I can't remember if we were in southern Georgia or Florida or where. But anyway, um, in in actual cottonmouth area. But knowing how afraid my brother is of snakes, I, I may have actually harassed him a little bit, thereby probably making this legend a little worse. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't do that. I know, no. But um, cottonmouths, you know, they, they get their name from this, this strikingly white mouth that they have. So when they're threatened, one of their characteristic defensive behaviors is to hold their mouth open, displaying that white lining in hopes that it's going to scare away a potential predator. Um, Epo-Semitism. Bless you. That's, that's, <laughs> you're welcome. But that, that's the word for that, that warning display is apo or eposemitism. Ah, gotcha. Okay. So anyway, so of course, as a person, it's, it's easy to see that, that say the word again, please. Aposemitism. Aposemitism. Apo okay. So it's easy to see that aposemitism and think, whoa, that's, that's one aggressive snake when the actual intent isn't even aggression. It's, it's defense. But anyway, it's, this is a classic example of an animal indicating, Hey, you're in my space. I'd like you to move away without us interacting. Just carry on. There's nothing to see here. Um, when, when they do that. But in fact, interestingly, so there was actually a study of cottonmouths uh, that, that was done back in 2002. And they revealed that cottonmouths rarely bite in self-defense even. Um, none of the cottonmouths that, that they tested offered to bite a researcher when they stood right beside them. Less than 20% tried to bite when they were physically stepped on. And I'm, I'm hoping for the case of this, wow. that it was just gently, you know, putting step yeah. pressure on them. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully these guys were wearing some great snake gaiters too. But anyway, but even just to drive that home, even when the, the cotton mouths were picked up by the researchers, 
only 36% of the snakes attempted to bite. Um, so they, they really aren't inclined to bite you. Um, the most common behaviors displayed, obviously, during that are, you know, gaping and trying to get away and they vibrate their tails, all the, the same stuff we've just talked about. So, but it doesn't mean the science that I've got doesn't mean that the reports of cotton mouths moving towards a person is completely fictitious. Um, because in fact, when, when given a few options for escape, cotton mouths tend to move in the direction of the closest cover, regardless of whether or not there's a person standing there. Um, yep. Sometimes if that movement's accompanied by, you know, a raised head and in addition to attempt to get that, that intruder to get out of the way, they can see that it's additional aggression. But anyway, these characteristics, they, they can scarcely be described as, as aggression or chasing the, the cottonmouth's just exhibiting behavior that it's going to try to get away. It's going to crawl over your boots between your legs or right around people with zero interest in actually biting that person. There's tons of video all over the interwebs now that, that really show this behavior. But in reality, the average person is likely describing any snake observed near them that isn't fleeing as being aggressive and any snake, obviously, if it's in your yard, obviously, it must be the, the copperhead. If it's a snake near water, obviously, it's a cottonmouth or a water moccasin, yeah. it, regardless of how similar in appearance they are or where they, that, that person may live, because people swear that cottonmouths occur well outside of their documented range. Um, and I, I just realized, you know, we could and we should actually do a whole episode on facts about snakes. Well, I think you just did. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, here we come up with an urban legend. I say, yeah, no. And then you give all this sciencey stuff to back your stuff up. But anyway, that was that, that was that was great because I just hear these stories about snakes chasing people and all this other fun stuff. So I'm glad you touched on that. So um all right, let me think one more with snakes. Okay, here's one that I love. And it's it's an this is truly an urban legend. But have you ever heard of like someone's second or third cousin's best friend who jumped off a quarry and landed in a nest full of water moccasins? <laughs> no. I, I've heard that story so many times. I've seen so many people, and when I when I when I ask them like did that really happen? And and they will swear on anyone's grave that they know a far distant cousin twice removed whose best friend was swimming in a quarry and he was bitten so many times by cottonmouths that he he died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. So <laughs> I will tell you in all the research I've done, Googling and just looking up any any instance of that ever happening, <laughs> still haven't found that. And people can never never come up with that documentation, but they all know someone who died that way. So I guess what, what I could say for that is, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, it's, it is tough when we can't find anything to substantiate a claim. But anyway, those those were really great. Um, but how about some on general wildlife, urban legends? I mean, I'm sure there's there's a ton of those. Uh, yeah, and if you don't mind, I think we're going to go a little bit over on this podcast, but th I love, love, love this topic. So working in the field of wildlife, we've we've heard them all. Oh, yeah. So, okay, not to bust in right away, but one of my favorites is that the, the granddaddy longlegs are the most venomous spiders, like, ever. And and actually, yeah. 
this one actually, you know, I need to give it a little explanation again. Um, so everybody just sit back, but there's, there's likely two critters that are probably being discussed here. So according to entomologists um, at like the, the University of California, the term daddy long legs is actually used um, commonly to refer to two distinct types of creatures, um, opalonids and ar arachnids, which those are, those are the ones that have the little pill-shaped bodies and they ate long legs, like really long legs, but they're not actually spiders. Um, and then uh, fulcids, which- Aren't they called, are, are, aren't they called like harvest men or something like that? Uh, I've only ever heard them called granddaddy long legs, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think I think they're they're called harvestmen instead of spiders. So, oh, right, oh, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Anyway, and then and then there's there's fulcids, which have long legs and they have small bodies, but it's a, it's a traditional um, traditional body. So they resemble the the opaleonids, uh, which are the the little pill shaped ones, but the the fulcids they're they're actually true spiders. So it's it's tough on this one again because you know, most of the time, uh, the one that most folks are actually thinking about when they're talking about granddaddy long legs are those opaleonids, the, the ones that have the little pill-shaped body and the eight super long legs. And these guys, they prefer to live in like dark, moist places, and they actually eat mostly de decomposing vegetation and, and other animal matter. But they do not have venom glands, fangs. They don't have any mechanism for chemically subduing their food. Um, and, and I, those vegetables, yeah, that, those right? vegetables like run fast. Yeah. They need a lot of subduing, but I, and I actually did, did research on the, the UC entomologist website to, to verify this. But so with just a smidge of logic, we can actually see that these guys, they don't have any venom and therefore they can't be venomous. Um, but some, some do have some defensive secretions that might be poisonous to small animals if they're ingested. So Ironically, they may be poisonous to some small critters that try and eat them. Um, and this is just Stephanie's pet peeve of the, the day yeah. that venom is injected, poison is ingested. So anyway, but those, those fulcets, the, the actual daddy long legs, true spiders, they are venomous predators um, that, that generally never bite people, but their fangs are capable of penetrating the skin. So um, for this reason, We'd, we'd like to think that this might be the culprit that started the myth, but I actually don't think so because most people point to the little pill-shaped one and say that's a granddaddy long legs, but just just work with me here. So, because I, I researched them both just to, to make sure I, I knew the ins and outs of this anytime that it got brought up. The, the begs the question then, is the fulcids venom extremely toxic? So surprisingly, because they almost never bother to bite, scientists really haven't conducted any research to discover, yeah. discover if the venom's toxicity level to humans is high. So in my research, um, I actually found a need to cite television for the first time. So um, uh -oh. yeah, in 2004, the Discovery Channel, they, they have this show called Mythbusters, or they used to, I don't know if it's still on, but- oh, Loved it. Yeah, so Mythbusters, they stepped in to fill in this seemingly gaping knowledge void, right? Um, so. The, the team set out to coax a daddy long legs spider again. So not the little pill shaped body guy, but the real spider version into biting one of the, the arms on the co-host uh, Adam Savage. So, and it, then the, the myth was busted. The spider was, was able to penetrate Savage's skin. Um, so it could actually penetrate, but then he reported nothing more than a 
really mild burning sensation from the venom that lasted just a few seconds. So nothing, I guess, like a myth buster to validate our myth busting. Well, thank you so much for that explanation on daddy long legs, because that, that might be one of the number one biggest uh, urban legends out there when it comes to wildlife. But uh, another one that I have heard quite a bit, and it ten it tends to be stated from those not so savvy wildlife people is that porcupines shoot their quills like semi-automatic or automatic oh my gosh that would be the coolest thing wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now i i will say that myth of porcupines shooting their quills it was probably born when someone's dog came in contact or face to face with a porcupine and then that dog came home with a face full of quills now Here's the thing, that upset dog owner um, probably believed, gave his dog way too much credit and thought his dog was way too smart to go face-to-face with a porcupine. <laughs> well, I hate to say it, but some dogs are not always the sharpest tool in the shed. So I uh, just want people to know, where, to, to know that nowhere, never, ever has there been a porcupine that was shooting automatic or semi-automatic quills at anyone. Um, and so no quills have ever been propelled through the have air. Have we tried lever action? Um, but I w- <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're, you're getting silly now. <laughs> but I will say that those quills, like when, when a porcupine is in a defensive situation, those quills too come out rather easily. Um, it, that, that's, that's their main defense is to, to roll up. And if they get touched, those quills will come out. Um, super easily, but they just do not get airborne. Um, it is a really cool thought that they could shoot them, though. I got to admit yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I can totally hear them over there. Lock and load, people. Lock and load. <laughs> can I, can I, th- this will be my only tangent. I'm going to do a really short one. <laughs> Steve Harvey does Family Feud, and the one question that cracks me up every time, uh, the, the, the question was, name a word that comes after pork and one of the contestants said you pine (laughs) (laughs) you pines its own word (laughs) i would have gone for chops but you know whatever (laughs) okay give me another animal or another legend uh black panthers that they sound like a lady screaming (laughs) in the middle of the night so um yes yeah there's there's lots of critters that make interesting sounds in the night. And I'll be the first to tell you, some of them totally don't sound like what your brain says it should sound like. I mean, if you've ever heard an eagle, actually, it's this giant statuesque bird that sounds like somebody gave him a bottle of helium. Um, anyway, but there's there's always tales about the sound that that somewhat resembles, and I'm air quoting somewhat resembles, a woman screaming, um, that can be heard at night. And it seems that the legends always chalk up to this myth of the mythical North American black Panther. Um, in reality, it's likely a Fox. I mean, I can't tell you in every single instance there was somebody said, well, I heard something screaming in the middle of the night. I wasn't there. I can't tell you in every single time it was a Fox, but it was likely a Fox, definitely some other animal, not a black Panther. Those aren't real in North America. Anyway, Daryl and I, um, we actually started a podcast uh, about debunking black cougars and it was a while ago, um, but we started it with this nighttime cry of a Fox. Um, 
and if if any of our listeners if they don't remember it they might actually remember daryl's year here attempt at a grandpa voice that was really bad um that maybe that it it took me yeah it took me a few days <laughs> i think i gave myself a hernia <laughs> anyhow that is a great example of you know something that you can hear that it just doesn't even sound like what you think it was but anyway you, if, you, if you care to go go listen to that podcast and it's a, a great example yeah that's an awesome podcast because not only do we debunk the whole black panther myth but we also talk about the fact that eastern cougars are pretty much non-existent unless you're in the florida everglades or near there so um go have a listen to that one okay let's just do a couple more and then we'll have to wrap up but i'm gonna i'm gonna change gears it's it's not gonna be so much a wildlife urban legend but it's one that i'm sure a lot of people have heard of especially if you live in the southeast and that is if you tend to go out in the spring summer fall and get into some real brushy area and you come home and a day or so later you're tore up with chigger bites and oh my gosh, that 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 is, I, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy because there's nothing worse than having hundreds of chigger bites on your feet or around your waistband. But where I'm getting at with this urban legend is this idea of, because inevitably when people say, what can I do? Someone's going to say, oh, you put clear fingernail polish on chigger bites and the itch will go away. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the best way to relieve the insane itchiness of chigger bites is to take a blowtorch to them. Probably. <laughs> but that's probably not a good thing to do. But this whole idea of using clear fingernail polish, that is definitely an urban legend. And here's why, folks. The reason they give is they say that the fingernail polish, once you apply it over that bite, it will begin to suffocate the chiggers, which are buried deep within your skin. And that you're itching because that, that tiny, tiny insect is still buried in your skin. And that is completely untrue. The main, um, the main problem with that thought is by the time you experience the itchiness from that chigger bite, that chigger is long gone it bites you and it is literally off your body not long after it bites you and so what is going on is your body is simply having a reaction to the saliva and so putting clear fingernail polish on a chigger bite to suffocate the chigger that's buried deep within you don't even know what's going <laughs> you're completely confused as to literally the biology of what is going on with that particular bite so clear fingernail clear fingernail polish on chigger bites yeah no <laughs> you're getting good at the yeah no but all right um okay so i've heard, i'm sure that you've heard that catfish as big as volkswagen beetles live below dams oh yeah, yeah. so like any good tall tale these stories they do contain a, a shade of truth um making it seem at least vaguely possible um or a possible explanation for the longevity and, and wide distribution of this but anyway so i mean there are species of catfish uh that live in europe that that do get bigger than our cats um though admittedly still nowhere near the size of a vw bug and this one honestly it's sort of like my cryptids from the last podcast um i think this this one actually didn't start with the, you know uncle dad brother or mr johnson it actually started with mark twain 
um, because he wrote in one of his memoirs about this 250 pound catfish, which would be stupidly large than the current you know record holder for a catfish. But anyway, then next thing we know, there's tales of some farmer in the super early 1900s who supposedly decided for reasons known best only to himself um, that when a monster catfish supposedly got stuck in the shallows, he thought it was a great idea to jump right in on its back and then get barbed and further dramatize it by saying it pulled him down and tried to drown him. But anyway, then of course, there was this, this debunked faked picture that was supposed to be um, of an 800 pound catfish from Tennessee. Of course, leave it up to Tennessee to be the home of the outlandish. But anyway, um, in the Great Depression era and in the, the era right after that building of dams across the South, the, the legend of these ginormous catfishes, it got a whole new flair by instead of these fish just existing, now they say, well, these guys, they like to live in the deep areas right there at the dams and supposedly making, you know, that, that, that new case of where they live that made it more plausible for some people to actually think that, that this is possible. Anyhow, like, like the stories of Bigfoot or, you know, tales of these monster cats that are the size of a VW beetle, they're right there with stories of the Loch Ness monster, you know, because there's salvagers who work deep in rivers all over the South, well, anywhere, but, you know, this seems to be the South is rife with, with these monster cat stories. But anyhow, they talk all the time about some of these giant catfish that they've seen. They'll, they'll tell you, you know, I've seen 90 to hundred pounders even. While a hundred pound catfish is a huge catfish, we do need to keep in context that a VW bug weighs over 3000 pounds. So anyway, why, why we like to let our imaginations get the better of us. A 3000 pound catfish is pretty much outlandish. It's a one of Daryl's. Yeah, no, but my guess is that they're saying, you know, in their minds, they're associating a VW bug with a super small car and these giant catfish as a super big fish. So they're probably actually meaning a hundred pound catfish, which is still freaking huge, but it is not the size of a 3000 pound VW bug. Yeah. I've heard that catfish story all mm -hmm. over. So, all right, let, let me wrap up. Let, let this be the last one because I got to sneak this in here. And the main reason I'm sneaking it in here just within the last few days, there was a couple of Facebook threads that I was dealing with Indian marker trees. Hmm. Do you know what those uh -huh. are? Have you heard of those? Okay. Well, if you can picture a large tree bent over at an awkward angle, so the, the base of the large tree is literally parallel to the ground and then it shoots upward, it's a, it's a deformed looking mm -hmm. tree. And there is some historical context that say Native Americans used to bend these trees and they would mark... Uh, for example, a direction to where they can portage uh, across a stream, a shallow point in a stream, or to mark a trail. Supposedly, they were fairly common in the Great Lakes area because you did not have this very tall topography is relatively flat and these really dense forests. So they have been known to create these Indian marker trees. They were, they're just signposts, so to speak. Now, keep in mind, when the Native Americans were the dominant um, culture across North America was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Now, people nowadays, they're going for a walk somewhere in the Appalachian, somewhere in the East, and they find this big bent tree. And they take a picture of it and they post it on Facebook and say, 
I found an Indian marker tree. Mm. The problem is most of the trees they're taking pictures of. Now, keep in mind, the southeast especially is extremely moist and very temperate growing. Trees grow fast. And a lot of the trees they're taking pictures of are 50, 60, 80, even 100 years old. Unless you have a tree that's going to be two or 300 years old, you are not going to have an Indian marker tree. But everybody, not everybody, but so many people believe in these Indian marker trees are still all over the East Coast. And literally what it boils down to is it's a tree that was either damaged in a windstorm or another tree fell on top of it earlier in its growth. But it's not some 300-year-old sacred Indian marker tree that uh, has been standing there and has been spared the axe of the European race. So anyway, I had to throw that in simply because I've been answering questions on it for the last day or so. So maybe maybe we should wrap this up. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Go ahead and start wrapping it up. Uh, I believe you're right. I did have fun and this is definitely going to be probably our longest episode, but I do want to say I sincerely hope we didn't offend anyone with tonight's podcast on urban legends. Um, no, can I take that back? Mm, sure. <laughs> here's the, here's the reason people should not get offended by learning the truth. And what I, what I should have said is I hope I didn't shatter anyone's belief or their faith in their grandfather, or possibly even old man Johnson. I, I swear they're all really great guys. Um, so just, we, we just wanted to shed some light on some of these urban legends, and I hope we did that. And um, hopefully you'll be much better and more well-learned and better educated about some of the things you, you see out there. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast. So with that, you want to start wrapping it up? You want to do the honors sure. tonight? Sure. So as we always, uh, as we always, we would like to say thank you to all of our listeners. You guys do rock. Um, if you enjoyed tonight's episode, we do strongly recommend that you follow along with Wildlife for You on your favorite podcast platform. Just subscribe so that you can get updates on when we have anything new come out. We also encourage you to visit our website at www.wildlifeforyou.com. But probably the best way to follow us and keep track of us is on Twitter. But but Facebook, we, we definitely recommend Facebook and remember we, we aren't just doing this for you because when it comes to wildlife folks, your knowledge often means their existence. Good job, D. Oh, good job. Good. S. <laughs>